Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And today we're going to be talking more about the economic response to COVID-19, because we really haven't had enough discussion of COVID-19 yet. Uh, But this is an important one. We're going to focus this time on the workplace. Looking at the news, much of the focus has been on government so far, and that's rightly so, with their nearly unlimited capacity to spend and marshal resources to confront this unprecedented pandemic. But in that focus on government, it is easy to forget the primary economic relationship in most people's lives or with an employer of some kind, with income, benefits, and often personal support coming from a relationship with the workplace. And while this is most certainly a time when employers are feeling the squeeze, they remain a critical part of the social safety net and economic health of the province. And believe it or not, there are things they could do to make that social safety net stronger. So we want to talk about some of those things today. For example, while most policy commentators are focusing on the 7 million people who have lost their jobs or seen a significant reduction in their employment as as a result of COVID-19, we know the majority of people in Canada are still working. So to help us dive into this today, so delighted to welcome a founding partner of Commonwealth, which is a business focused on expanding access to retirement security, and a former director of policy to Ontario's uh, Minister of Finance, Alex Mazur. Alex, welcome to Ontario Loud. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. It's great to to be on the show, and I love uh, what you guys are doing in terms of focusing on politics and policy in uh, the great province of Ontario. (laughs) <laughs> well, happy to hear that that is a it is a shared passion. Um, Alex, some listeners might be familiar with you as a city council candidate in Toronto a while back. Some might be familiar with your work at, at Commonwealth, and others might not be familiar with you at all. So maybe just start off a little bit about yourself, how you're doing, and how you came to be interested in this topic of what employers can do as part of the social safety net. Yeah, and no, thanks, Chris. Um, so like you and Karima, I'm a uh, recovering uh, public service slash political staffer. So uh, my original training is in law, uh, but then I very quickly moved into a public policy role. So I worked for uh, about four years for the Ontario Finance Minister under the McGuinty government, uh, Dwight Duncan. Uh, I started in Minister Duncan's office about a month before Lehman Brothers collapsed. So I quickly got drawn into a whole series of very interesting and critical work around the economic recovery around that, uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, worked on issues of pensions, worked on issues of insurance and taxation, was part of the team that brought in the harmonized sales tax, uh, worked on uh, economic stimulus as part of that uh, economic recovery, and then later um, sort of deficit reduction measures that eventually led to the Drummond Commission and a variety of kind of government uh, transformation and reform initiatives. So that was my introduction really to, to public uh, finance. The topic of pensions was something that was entirely new to me uh, back in 2008 and was a file at the time that for government was considered to be really, a, some people call it the third rail, something that politicians sort of touch only at their peril and was considered kind of a political loser. And someone gave me the file because uh, I had a law degree thinking that I would know something about it, which I didn't know anything about at the time. But I was fortunate to learn a lot from the civil servants, from the people in the pension uh, sector in Ontario, which is you know some of the best pension people in the world. And uh, I got really, really engaged in the question of what do we do for people who do not have a good pension through their work? Uh, so we worked for a number of years to try and solve that from a public policy perspective. 
Um, and that work, I'd like to think, sort of helped culminate in the enhancement of the Canada Pension Plan, which came into effect last year, probably about after about 10 years of work from inside and outside government. Great. That's really helpful, Alex, especially as, well, I was at in the Ministry of Finance here in Ontario when um, C- the CPP enhancement was being negotiated and just know that it did take years of work to link track for that to happen. And certainly the mood at that time was was thinking about not only the pressures that employers were facing in providing um, secure pensions to their their employees, but also there is this this constant debate around the role of a program like the CPP versus other um, retirement income benefits like or senior benefits like OAS, and then the the continuing role of the workplace and employers, especially those um, employers that do have the room to provide. Um, their employees with a, with a sense of retirement security upon their retirement. And and that was, you know, now we can sort of see back um, hindsight as 2020. And, and those were maybe the heydays, because now when we think of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis that's been created, you know, there's a lot of, of again, debate around what um, the role is of employers and workplaces in supporting their employees at this time. And so I want to um, move to a post that, a medium post that you wrote with a couple of colleagues in Canada and in the U.S. entitled, A Workplace-Based Economic Response to COVID-19. You've contextualized what we're seeing with some pretty sobering stats about the dire situation that millions of Canadian households were already facing before the crisis. And that includes, you know, more than half of Canadians uh, were living paycheck to paycheck. A third of Canadians did not have enough savings to stay above the poverty line for three months. And nearly four in 10 Canadians had no retirement savings. And so with all of that said, and the pre-pandemic context, it's not difficult to see that the current crisis has made people feel even more financially insecure. In the note, you suggest ways in which employers can support employees during the crisis and beyond. Um, But, and, and so you've outlined four ways in which employers can do that, um, they can continue to, to provide coverage of workplace benefits for those affected by the crisis, perhaps those that are furloughed, for example, enhance existing workplace benefits to provide additional financial relief and protection, help workers access government supports offered as part of the economic response, and lastly, extend workplace benefits to those without coverage today, many of whom are also the most vulnerable to the crisis or the crisis economic impact. So with all that said, and starting big picture, um, the narrative that we're certainly hearing through the media is that businesses are cash strapped and under pressure. So in your view, why should employers be investing in benefits and in their employees right now? And who do we think has the flexibility to do so? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Garima. Um And part of the reason we, we wrote the post um, is, you know, as Chris said in the introduction, you know, the workplace has always been kind of a critical part of the safety net. It's not always part of public policy discussions, but it's just critical if you think about, you know, 
uh, it's the place where people receive their income. It's the piece, piece where many people receive kind of benefits, whether it's insurance or retirement savings or um, even employee assistance programs. So if we're thinking about a kind of comprehensive multi-sectoral approach, uh, we should not leave out the, the workplace uh, element. Um, we kind of wrote it really for employers that are looking to do something. So, you know, we recognize that there's many employers, especially in, in the small business community that are really just trying to stay alive and, and some of them may not survive. And for the, for them, they're not thinking about enhancing benefits, but there are also other employers that have, you know, that have done well uh, through this crisis that have put, uh, you know, their employees through some really challenging situations in terms of uh, being on the front lines of this. And, you know, some of them have, have, you know, increased wages, for example, temporarily. And we're hearing from employers that, you know, that we want to see what, what more we can do. You know, uh, we, we've heard that some employers have developed an, a, maybe a greater awareness than ever of the financial precarity of some of their workforce um, and, you know, are wanting to know what they can do as employers to try and make that better. Um, and, you know, there's often, you know, a strong business case for this, too, because if you can help somebody you know, reduce the amount of paycheck to paycheck existence that they have, if you can help them reduce their financial stress, uh, that has, there's a fair amount of evidence that that can translate into greater productivity, greater kind of um, effectiveness at work. Um, so all that is to say that, you know, we recognize there's a wide variety of different kinds of employers, not all of whom are in a position to think about their benefits, but there's also others that are, are looking to do something uh, that has some benefit to them and their employees as well. That's really helpful because I think it, it starts to sort of fill out the idea of the employer landscape, right? So in the public's view, there's often all you hear about is the problems and not necessarily the employers that can continue to provide uh, supports and services to their employees. And, you know, if we take the household's perspective into in mind, um, there may be situations where in a dual earning household, one partner may have lost their job or seen a significant reduction in hours, whereas the other person is still employed. And so, you know, their connection to both the state in some element in terms of the person that's lost their job is could be receiving the CERB, for example. But in that household, there is still a person that is connected to their workplace and their employer, and they and they need support from their employers, especially when it comes to feeling financially secure during these turbulent times. Yeah, I mean, just just to build on that, I think you know governments think a lot about income, um, and you know that's that's obviously you know critically important to make sure that people have you know some form of income continuity if they lose a job or if they you know have a significant decrease in their income from work. But the other critical part of this is, as well is, is assets or wealth uh, or savings, right? Which, which, which we think a lot about, which kind of workplace benefits providers and employers as sponsors of kind of workplace pensions and retirement savings arrangements think a lot about as well. Um, and, and I know that that's increasingly a part of the kind of anti-poverty debate, you know, at the federal and provincial levels is how do we help build, build especially low and moderate income people, how do, how do you help them build a level of financial security, which is really around kind of savings or assets uh, and not just having the income level. So part of the, the area where the workplace can be very helpful is encouraging that, you know, I, I guess thinking about it from a family balance sheet point of view, as, as you say. So, you know, how can we really as a society make sure we don't come out of this? I mean, we already had very high levels of debt, very low levels of savings, and even worse situation coming out of this. And, and what can we all do working together? And that's 
really got to be a combination of government, yes, but also employers, uh, labor unions, professional groups, um, obviously with, with an individual responsibility there too, but uh, we, we, I think you know, we have an, an opportunity and a responsibility to step up and protect those household balance sheets that are, especially the ones that are the most kind of vulnerable and for the frontline workers that have been on the, the front lines of this crisis. It's, it's interesting because it strikes me that there has been a lot of public discussion about the balance sheets of businesses, and in some cases rightfully so, and less on individual people in a holistic way. It's sort of like, in particular, there's been a, a sort of a recurring story. I've seen it kind of in my newsfeed like once or twice a week at least, that there's a set of like smaller businesses and even some larger ones who might base their profits on gig economy work standards that could be disrupted in this situation. Um, But definitely small businesses who might look at the kind of investment in benefits that you're describing as fundamentally out of reach for them in the current climate. And I'm curious, like for workers in those organizations, what kind of solutions should we be be looking at? I mean, if I'm if I'm a big business, if I'm like Loblaws, obviously I can invest in my and should be investing in my workforce because you know I'm probably making record profits. But if I'm if I'm kind of being squeezed by everything else, what tools do I have at my disposal if I care about this issue? Yeah, I mean, so to unpack that a little bit, you know, one way to think about this is like, what is the business case? for offering workplace-based savings arrangements or, or retirement arrangements. The pure business case for it, and we've done quite a lot of research and, and work around this, is the idea that it's a very efficient form of compensation. Um, in other words, if you offer a good retirement or savings program through your work, that is likely to be a way more efficient way for somebody to build retirement income than if they try and save on, on their own. So we did a study, for example, with the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, or HOOP, that basically showed that a dollar saved through a really good pension or workplace-based arrangement could be three to four times more effective than a dollar saved through a typical individual arrangement, which is how most Canadians save through a bank or some other high-fee arrangement. So that is pretty good bang for the buck as an employer, whether you're big or small. To me, if you're an employer and we're a small business ourselves, so we think about this all the time. What you care about is are we are we using our money in the in the way that provides us the most bang for the buck because we have limited resources and our view is a good retirement plan is not a luxury it's actually a form of efficient compensation that, that can be great bang for the buck but the problem is that a lot of small and medium-sized employers typically haven't have had access to good workplace-based benefits because the pricing the availability of solutions and products tends to be based on your size so we really favor large employers and disfavor small employers. Um, that's part of what we're trying to be involved in, save, in, in, in solving, uh, which is to say, let's try and level the playing field and create high-quality, portable solutions for smaller and mid-sized employers, so they can also get access to high, high-efficiency, you know, forms of savings. I think, you know, from the individual perspective, having income in retirement, you know, not being in poverty in retirement, is not a luxury. So we often have this debate in talking about workplace benefits as if, you know, that's a sort of gold-plated type of thing. But I think most people would like not to be poor when they retire. And, you know, the fact is when you have 40% of Canadians with zero retirement savings, that is putting us on a path for a large number of people to be poor or not to have any assets beyond government benefits in, in, in retirement, which, you know, we see as a problem and something that employers, especially if they can be convinced of the business case, would want to be involved in solving. Now, when it comes to low and moderate income workers, and we could talk more about this, there are unique needs. So, you know, people often have a concern, especially if they aren't, you know, middle, middle income or above, that they won't be able to access their savings. So let's just say I have an emergency 
I really don't want to put money aside that's going to be locked up for 40 years and I can't access it. So we think things like emergency savings, allow, allowing people to save for emergencies through their workplace-based program, in addition to saving for retirement, can be a good way of, of making a program more attractive, both to younger people and to other people that are living on a lower and moderate, modest income, uh, you know, especially after living through a crisis like this, where you see you know, the, the real lack of emergency savings is, is a problem in our, in our country. We're, we're hoping that that's going to be a form of innovation. We're working on some, some, some stuff in that area that it's going to come to the Canadian kind of workplace-based benefits market in, in the coming months and years. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of uh, the different roles of lower and moderate income earners and their relationship to small, medium, or larger employers or companies. Chris raised, you know, what Loblaws should be or could be doing at this moment in time, but what we often hear from the grocery store sector, for example, is that their capacity and their margins are very low and and pension plans for grocery store workers, for example, through CQIP um, has been sorely underfunded for years. And and so I, I just want to unpack a little bit what, of what you were saying in terms of two things. So if I'm an executive in a medium or large sized enterprise with an existing benefit plan, um, what are some specific benefits that I should do or enhance right now in the next few months? And why might I be motivated to do these things? Secondly, and in recognizing that despite the the size of the employer or the company, there still might be reluctance to do so. Are there other ways in which the state then can, can step in to help lower and moderate income workers sort of save and build their pool of emergency savings so that they can be more resilient against uh, times of economic shock. Yeah, so I'll give you just a couple of examples like in conversations we're having with employers about some things that some large employers, and I won't, I won't name them because um, I don't think it's, it's public, but have, have been thinking about, right? So or, or doing so. So one would be, you know, if people are furloughed, for example, so they're, you know, they're laid off, but there's an intention to hire them back, trying to continue contributions into their pension plan or retirement plan, like while they're furloughed, so that they don't miss out on those on those contributions. That's that's one thing some people are thinking about. You know, another thing would be looking at parts of their workforce where they don't have coverage today, or where maybe they have a plan, but it's not well designed necessarily for for those workers and seeing, you know, A, could we bring people into the main retirement plan that we have uh, who are uncovered? Or B, uh, if we if that doesn't make sense, is there something else that we can offer them that would be more suited to a more transient, low and moderate income uh, workforce? So, you know, that kind of gets me a little bit to the, the second question. You know, we, we see a market failure when it comes to kind of low and moderate income workers and workplace-based benefits. Uh, so this this group today is Many of them are uncovered through their workplace arrangements. If they are covered, they're often given a group RSP, which can be very harmful to people that are likely to qualify for the guaranteed income supplement when they get older, because they end up having their government benefits clawed back quite aggressively, as, as you would know from your, your past work, uh, Karima. Um, and so that's a really inappropriate kind of solution for those folks. And they often end up paying very high fees through those arrangements as well. You know, just to give an example of the kind of portable arrangement that we are working on, you know, we're involved in a project, including working with, with Karima and some of her colleagues at, at Maytree, called Common Good, which is really an effort to get a portable national financial security program, workplace-based, 
going. We initially started with a focus on the not-for-profit sector. We're now kind of looking at, you know, could we expand that out to other sectors as well, where we, there are large numbers of frontline workers. But the idea here is really to have a plan that's portable from job to job that employers can plug into. So let's just say I'm a large employer and I say I've got a part of my workforce that I know aren't necessarily going to stay with me for that long, but I do want to offer something to them that they can take to them with them for their next job. This would be a program for an employer like that. And it would also be a program for a smaller, you know, say not-for-profit or a small business uh, if it gets expanded out that couldn't normally access a high quality retirement benefit because they don't have the scale, but they'd be pooling their resources together with all the other employers that would be part of it. And it would operate a little bit like some of the retirement plans you see in the public sector, which are kind of multi-employer, portable from job to job as long as you stay in a particular sector or, or in the government, but more flexible. Uh, and not, it wouldn't have the kind of liability that a lot of pension arrangements can sometimes have, traditional pension arrangements. So there wouldn't be liability for the employer. It would really be something that uh, is uh, you know, an individual account for the member that's portable from job to job based on the tax-free savings account, which is a much better savings vehicle for low and moderate income workers. Mm-hmm. And potentially paired with some you know, features around you know, emergency savings or even help in accessing government benefits, because there's a lot of, we can talk about this too, but there's a lot of government benefits that are out there that you know, are great programs, but many people don't claim because they just don't understand them. You know, an example would be the, the Canada Learning Bond, uh, which you know, provides up to $2,000 for low income, low and modest income families to help save for their kids' education. And it's been really proven to help people have their kids sent to post-secondary, but there's over a million Canadians that don't benefit from that, even though it's $2,000 of free money. So you know, can we also help through the workplace people to access you know, these kinds of benefits and work in partnership with governments and others on those things? So um, that's, that's the kind of thing that we think there needs to be more of in the Canadian context. And we're working, you know, working with a variety of partners to try and make that happen. Uh, there's some new labor market data, which assesses the immediate fallout of COVID-19. And it's showing that, of course, the labor market impacts of this pandemic are not being felt equally. Uh, And this can come through a number of ways. People who either uh, lose their jobs, they can just see a dramatic decrease in their hours work. Uh, We've seen disproportionate uh, impacts on women and non-unionized workers. Um, And so with this in mind, are there other types, we talked a lot about um, sort of uh, savings mechanisms and certainly keeping that um, as a part of the uh, conversation is is important, but are there other types of supports and programs that not only strengthen the employer-employee relationship, but also address some of the pre-crisis stats that we should uh, be thinking about in this discussion? Like, is there an opportunity to use this moment um, in some of the ways that um, uh, the direct assistance has been sort of trying to do to address some of those inequities that we know exist in the system? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there def- definitely are, you know, and I think that this crisis has heightened, you know, a lot of people's resolve to try and do something about it. So you know, obviously there's a large large number of people that have been working on kind of strengthening family balance sheets, uh, particularly around kind of marginalized groups, you know, for some time. Uh, so we, we come at it from the perspective of, you know, retirement savings, uh, but there's other important gaps, you know, in the, in the social safety net. Um, you know, some of those gaps relate to kind of healthcare coverage and, and insurance, uh, which is another important workplace benefit, not one I'm an expert in, but one that, you know, a lot of people are thinking about. Um, there's also the issue of financial, high quality, trusted financial advice, as we also see that, you know, good financial advice and planning can be quite valuable, but it's 
access to it is highly concentrated amongst higher income people. And um, even for those people, you know, there's a lot of conflict of interest. There's not a strong kind of what's called a fiduciary duty, a duty to do what's the, in the best interest of the person being served. Um, and people oh, yeah. often make, make really <laughs> bad decisions about, about money if they don't have access to, to high quality advice. So we think there's a role for both employers and government in expanding access to that kind of financial planning and advice, particularly amongst people that are kind of middle income and, and below, um, which can also help strengthen balance sheets. Um, there's a whole other conversation around, around debt um, and, and affordable housing, you know, which is a, a key, a key part of helping people to build, you know, and there's also a key conversation around kind of small business and business ownership, because that's also another way in which people, you know, move uh, and, and have and gain kind of income and wealth mobility is by, by owning and scaling small business. And we see that, you know, small businesses really suffering a lot through this crisis. Uh, and there's people that are thinking very carefully about how can we build more pathways to employee ownership of, of companies and formation of new small businesses and especially helping kind of women and people of color and indigenous people kind of build, build small businesses and build, build wealth. So that's a conversation that, you know, maybe some people would say is kind of un-Canadian. It's a more common conversation in the U.S., um, but it is a very powerful mechanism at helping, you know, decrease wealth inequality uh, and build kind of equity across, um, across the society. Um, I guess the other thing I would add to it is, you know, because you mentioned non-unionized workers have been especially affected. Uh, a lot of our work is is working with labor unions in thinking about, you know, how they can add even more value to society. Obviously, they're critical in, in, in helping to protect mm -hmm. workers' rights and also um, reduce inequality. But we think there's also a really important opportunity for labor unions to offer benefits and fill gaps that are not being filled by the traditional kind of employer-centric model. So, you know, a lot of people, when you, when you ask them kind of why would you join a union, uh, one of the primary reasons is to access high-quality benefits. Yeah. Uh, and, and we work with labor unions, and we've, we've worked with a number to try and kind of come up with ideas or portable benefits uh, that they can offer to their members and even to new prospective members as a way of, of strengthening kind of the union value proposition, if I can use that term. Um, and strengthen the union movement because obviously a strong labor movement is critical to having uh, an equitable society. And a lot of unions are thinking carefully about how do we evolve with the changing nature of work, the growth of the gig economy, and the kind of fraying of the traditional employer-employee um, social compact. Um, and then, so that's got to be part of the thinking, I think, as we as we try and you know you know rebuild. Um, and you know I think it's something that government should be encouraging as well is, is innovation from from a labor union perspective. For sure. And so if we think about the evolving nature of work and, you know, this idea that the ways in which the labor mu movement is evolving its work to meet the needs and meet ideas of its membership, how do we compel employers who a couple a couple of decades or even years ago from thinking that contributions to retirement security plans or pension plans, for example, were luxury cost items, but are instead absolutely essential. And so if I'm now trying to um, sort of balance and manage risk uh, for my company, um, and if I'm trying to both manage the expectations of my employees but also the expectations of shareholders, for example. Um, 
what sorts of arguments can be made for employers so that they don't seek an off switch for some of the benefits that they're currently providing? Um, And what kinds of things would you want to keep in the longer term? Um, If we sort of just think back to previous recessions, understanding that this pandemic and economic shock and crisis is unlike we've seen before. But if you could sort of think back to previous recessions and where employers had started to cut back, um, what would that counterfactual look like now? And where would you advise employers to keep investing despite it costing a little bit more? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a, a few a few parts to that. Um, I'll maybe come back to kind of like what's what's the business case for an employer from a, from a pure kind of business point of view. I think, you know, the business case relates to kind of um, providing benefits that are going to attract and retain high quality staff. I think the business case relates to, you know, the productivity of the workforce. So if you can help reduce, if you can provide a retirement benefit or a financial security benefit, that's going to decrease, you know, the amount of absenteeism and presenteeism and increase the level of engagement and productivity. And there's a lot of data, you know, that shows this. There was one study, for example, from the Canadian Payroll Association that found that financial stress was costing the Canadian economy and Canadian employers $16 billion. So there's an increasing amount of research around around financial stress. That is key. Now, the next question, and you alluded to this, Karima, is the employer is going to say, okay, what's the cost to me and what's the risk to me? So the traditional pension model had a lot of cost and a lot of risk because it basically said, you, employer, you know, are going to set up a pension plan. You are going to bear all the liability, and you're going to be responsible for that as long as your employees live. And that may have made a lot of sense when you had, you know, the average company that was going to last decades and um, a workforce that stayed with that company for decades. It doesn't make much sense when the average corporate lifespan is about a third of what it used to be and where employees are changing jobs more often and where, you know, accounting standards for things like pensions have changed so that they're, you know, having a single employer defined benefit pension plan really results in a lot of volatility from a financial point of view and CFOs, you know, get really, really concerned about that. So do shareholders. So it needs to be basically as low risk as possible and as affordable as possible for the employer. And it's easy to administer because I, I, I haven't yet found an employer that says, I would really love to be in the pension business when I'm in some other business, right? They don't want to spend a lot of time on running a pension program. So they need something that they can basically contribute to that's low cost, that's low risk, and that has high bang for the buck in terms of what the employees get out of it and the impact on their attraction, retention, financial stress, and productivity. Um, I actually think it's not that hard to make that business case. Um, and if you show it to people and if you give them a solution that's portable, low cost, low risk for the employer, expertly managed, something that employees can trust, something that's efficient, you know, that's the type of thing that we're working on. And I think it's something that a lot of employers will be, will be interested in that we need more of. But, you know, the problem is we built our whole workplace-based system, especially outside the public sector, around the idea of one person staying for their entire career at one employer, one employer being around for a really long time and taking full responsibility. And that just doesn't make sense you know, in the current environment. So we need, you know, what we think of as kind of portable benefits, portable retirement benefits, other kinds of benefits that are portable from job to job. Um, you know, and these could be sponsored by a union, by an association, by a sector. The government could, could sponsor one as well or co-sponsor one or, you know, fund the creation of these things. We need to have some injection of innovation into this because mm-hmm. we have a system that's, you know, built for really the, the 20th century and we're in a very different world, as, as you mentioned. So, uh, that's what we're kind of part of trying to shift towards. Other countries have taken more leadership on this, I'd say, you know, both by funding things, setting things up, having programs that automatically enroll people in retirement savings programs. You know, for example, in the UK, 
basically all employers are required to automatically enroll their employees in a savings program. Uh, there are programs in California, in Oregon, in Illinois that are along those lines as well. Um, and in Canada, we're a little bit, little bit behind in, in developing these programs, but we're starting to see some, some opening, you know, from, from governments and others to, to move in that, in that direction. Yeah. And I, I think that sort of space for what we can do differently is, is really important. One thing, and it's funny, uh, before the podcast, we were talking about not getting too technical, but I'm going to ask the nerdiest of all pension questions, which is that I think like the we have yeah a conception that impacts our politics where there is a public sector with a really sort of rich defined benefit pension plan and that's really easy to understand from an employee perspective in the sense of like you know how much you're going to get based on your years of service and it is a real incentive to work in the public sector. There's also the defined contribution plans, which sort of place all of the risk on the employee. So I'm curious, like, we tend to have a fairly binary debate about the kind of pension benefits we see in Canada. I'm curious, are you looking at like a, a different model? Like what, you know, if the defined benefit plan is not the standard, you know, it, how do we how do we realistically finance something that is of less risk to the employer while also ensuring that, you know, we're not just putting people into plans where the, all the risks it's on the employee, which also seems dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I think um, we could probably get even nerdier if you want, if, if you want to get into the pension <laughs> questions, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, the, the approach that, 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 that tends to work pretty well is, is, is somewhere in between, right? Where um, you don't, you don't put all of the risk and onus on the individual but you also don't put all of the risk and the onus on the employer or the plan sponsor. So you know, I'll, I'll give an example. So, you know, it's, a, it's an Ontario relevant example. So, so we've been working for the last few years with the Ontario Medical Association because physicians by and large don't have a pension. They are self-employed uh, professionals, uh, but they still have a need for retirement income. So we have worked uh, very closely with the Ontario Medical Association to create a collective uh, workplace-based retirement plan for Ontario physicians and their families. It's voluntary because, you know, some physicians want to save through their own arrangements, which is, which is totally fine. Uh, but it's an arrangement that is, um, it's a group arrangement, so it's low cost. Um, it is a simple arrangement in that it has um, a limited number of investment options, uh, including kind of a default option that's a, uh, targeted at people's age and, 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 and retirement date. And it also has a way of turning your income, uh, your, your savings into guaranteed income for life uh, through you know, what we call a guaranteed lifetime income program. So in a lot of defined contribution plans, basically what happens is you know, they're reasonably good at helping you save and build a nest egg, but they, they provide no help or guidance whatsoever in turning that nest egg into monthly retirement income. Whereas this plan and other plans that we're working on you know, gives people ways of basically creating pension-like income in retirement that's guaranteed it will last as long as you live and could even have a survivor benefit for your spouse. But without the sponsor, in this case, the Ontario Medical Association, taking on the risk associated with that because that risk is borne by, by a life insurance company. So that's an example of an approach that combines you know, some elements of defined benefit with some elements of defined contribution. Um, for a group of people that are self-employed and not tied necessarily to a, to a single employer. There's other solutions that are, that are hybrid solutions like that as well that are available, um, but that's the kind of thing that we've been working on. 
And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Alex Mazur so much for coming on Ontario Loud. Alex has a well experience in the area of retirement security. So it's a really important angle to this crisis we're going through that we don't talk enough about. So we're really glad we got to get into it with him today, with some of the people and actually helped Ontario manage through an economic crisis before. So uh, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. We will be back on Friday with our regular news pod. In the meantime, we'll talk to you then. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Grimatel Kapoor, Alexi White, myself, Chris Martin, Alvin Tejo, Aisha, Anwar, and Harmon Mundy do our social media and our research. You can reach us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or at OntarioLoud on Twitter. We'll see you on Friday. Hope you're having a good week. <laughs>